Let's pray. We've come here to worship you, and we've come here to hear from you, our Lord and our Savior, the one who is building his church, and the one who is returning, the one who is coming again. So encourage your people as we labor on anticipating this day. Show us what we are to be about. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I've shared my testimony in varying ways and bits and pieces from the pulpit on several occasions, and I want to kind of do so again just as we, as we lead into this topic I'm talking about this morning. Because one of the things that God used to bring me to faith in Christ was a fear of hell. Despite not being raised in the church, I believed that God was real, and I believed hell was real. I also believed that I was going to end up in hell unless I figured out how to get to heaven. And so I carried those, those general beliefs with me throughout my childhood and on even into my teen years. I attended, for a brief little season, a church of Christ with my sister. Uh, I was about 10 years old. And the only thing I really got out of that time, even though I was there at a church, was that I needed to be baptized. I needed to be baptized. And that's pretty much what you get out of that church because that's what they preach. It was short-lived. And my sister and I eventually stopped attending. One of the other things that I actually did when I was, before I knew Christ, when I was still a child, is I read the Bible. Now, not in the way you might think. It wasn't out of a desire to find answers to, the, you know, these important questions about God and about heaven and about hell. I read the Bible because I wanted to know about the Antichrist. See, there was a movie that came out a year or so previous that captured my attention as a 10-year-old boy. It was called The Omen. Some of you know this movie. It was a supernatural thriller about a little boy named Damien who was the Antichrist as a boy. He was, he was going to grow up and be the Antichrist. And he was the Antichrist that was spoken of in the book of Revelation. So, okay, this is Hollywood's interpretation of these things, mind you. So we don't look to Hollywood to instruct us. But I was a 10-year-old boy without any knowledge. So I'm like, wow, is this for real? And so we had one Bible in our house growing up. And it was one of those big, thick King James family Bibles. I have no idea where it came from. But in this movie, they mentioned one chapter in the Bible. In the book of Revelation. And it was there that it told you how the beast could be identified. And so naturally, I pulled that huge Bible off the shelf. I dusted off the, the, the cover. I opened it up to see if what I heard in this movie was really there. And this is what I found. It was in chapter 13, verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Six, six, six. The mark of the beast. It was true. It was really in the Bible. Now, little did I realize that around five years later, God would actually use such fascination 
about the end times and the Antichrist to help bring me to faith in Christ. I still had all my same questions and fears. But see, now I was a teenager and I was getting more deliberate about avoiding thoughts about God. However, all, you know, as many parents here, many former teenagers can testify. And when you're a teenager, all sense goes out the window when a girl comes into the picture. And so... In order to be around a girl that I was interested in, I started attending a church youth group. And many things took place in this time that I was attending. But most importantly, I heard the gospel for the first time. And I met with a youth pastor. He challenged me to put my faith in Christ. But here I am, I'm considering all this. And I agreed to go to a youth conference, a Christian youth conference. It was many churches that came together. And it was here at this youth gathering where they showed a Christian film. It was made in 1972. It was called A Thief in the Night. How many of you have seen this movie? few. It attempts to portray the, the presumed perils during the, during the seven-year tribulation period. And some of the scenes depicted in the movie included this grim execution scene involving beheading by a guillotine. So it was the thoughts of not wanting to go through anything like that if Christ should return that actually God actually used that to motivate me to stop running from God and to ask Jesus to forgive me and to save me. And so my first feeling about the impending return of Christ was fear. It was fear. I don't want him to come back. I don't want to go through the tribulation. I don't want to have to have my head cut off if I believe in Jesus. And all of that was swirling in my mind. Now, let's be honest. There is a whole lot of speculation about the end of the world and about the return of Christ. That It leads many people to be in fear about what is to come. And what they might have to go through. Just just addressing our own lifetime of us here in this room. How many of you remember all the fearful end time speculations swirling around Y2K? How all the governments of the world were going to collapse. One world government was going to arise. It's been 23 years. And Bill Gates and the devil still haven't brought down the governments of our world. There, are two, there aren't too many Christian bookstores left around, right? But when you did go into them back in the day, you would find a whole section in the Christian bookstore devoted to eschatology. Eschatology is the branch of theology about the end times. And if you walked into that section, you'd find a book by Hal Lindsey, guaranteed, the late great planet Earth. And as time went on, you'd find other books. The, the Left Behind series. The Apocalypse Code by Hank Hanegraaff. Just a few titles. There's, there's umpteen titles. Then there were the predictions by Harold Camping. Family Radio. The rapture was going to occur on May 21st, 2011. Oop, no, no, I'm sorry. I meant October 21st, 2011. 
And then March of 2011, Harold Camping finally announces he was wrong. And he wouldn't make any more doomsday predictions. See, what we find when we look out over the Christian landscape is that there will always be those who speculate about when the end will come. But what we also find is that when prophetic speculation is prioritized, the church loses sight of its mission and loses the hope and the joy that biblical eschatology should give the church. See, our goal here at the Cornerstone Bible Church is to keep our focus on what is primary, discipleship, missions, membership, the fellowship of the saints, the preaching of his word. And the main thing that I think that we should be focused on when it comes to our eschatology, not the only thing, the main thing, is that Christ is returning in victory. The Apostles' Creed has served the church well for ages. And it simply states there what it is that matters most. This is just me slicing and dicing it, getting to the point. I believe in Jesus Christ. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He will come to judge the living and the dead. That's it. That's what matters most. There's nothing to fear in that if you're of him. In fact, there's much joy. And that's what I want to speak to you about this morning. This next sermon in our series on our joy in the glorious Christ, it's about his work, the work of Christ. And the title of the sermon is Joy in the Return of Christ. Joy in the Return of Christ. So last week, we looked back at one of his other works, right? His resurrection um, of the dead, right? So we look back at that. Now we're going to look forward at his return. And I imagine most Christians long for Christ to return, albeit in very, to varying degrees. And I say that because we know that when Christ returns, we're going to be ushered into a new era without sin, without death, without suffering. Even so, there are always going to be those who, who want Christ to just, just hold off. Please, just hold off a little bit. I want to see this loved one saved. I want to get married. I really want to get married before you to return Jesus. I want to have children. That's understandable. We can understand these desires. Though I, I must say, I think all of these are lesser joys that will be eclipsed by the greater joy when we are in the presence of Christ. We need to keep that in mind. And so I think it's safe to say that that Christians know, we know, the best is yet to come. And so I would like to also make sure that we know that our joy related to the coming kingdom of God, it is not only for our future. It is also for our here and now. And because we have been graciously included in the coming kingdom, we should be living right now. We should be serving right now in light of the kingdom. And so I've summed up my main point this morning this way. While anticipating an unending joy at Christ's return, right? That's the future focus. We should pursue the great joy of serving others today. 
while anticipating an unending joy at Christ's return, we should pursue the great joy of serving others today. And this helps us to see that a biblical eschatology, it should not lead us into speculations about how the world will end as much it should help us to live rightly in the present as we wait with hopeful anticipation of a full restoration and redemption to come. I was greatly encouraged by a little book. It was entitled Jesus Wins by Dayton Hartman. And much of what I'm sharing with you comes from just one chapter that encouraged me greatly in this book. And so a right eschatology has a future hope, but it also has a present focus. Eschatology should help us to understand how to live rightly in what the Bible does call these last days. We are indeed living in the final age of history, and we have been doing so for the last 2,000 years. Hebrews 1 opens up this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. So we are in the last days. When Jesus came into the world, he brought with him the kingdom of God. Jesus gave those around him. He gave them a taste of the kingdom life. Right? When he performed his miracles. And in reference to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst in Luke 17. So God's kingdom was inaugurated as he changed the hearts of men and women one at a time. Okay, and this is continuing right on down to today. God continues to add to those who are of his kingdom as his spirit regenerates the hearts of his people and they believe the gospel. So Christ is present in his kingdom. How? Through us. His people. His kingdom has already come. But it has not come in full. And that means that we are to be living as those who are of Christ's kingdom right now, and we must continue to do so until the king returns, and at that time when he ushers in his kingdom in full. So we, we are on our way to something glorious. Life with God in his kingdom where our joy, it will be full and it will be forever. And from the very beginning, this was God's desire. Mankind's relationship with God which began in the Garden of Eden, was where we see that his desire was to be amongst us. The Bible tells us this. It, this is where, not only where we began, it tells us this is where we're going. The entire story of redemption is getting us back to paradise with God. This is the unending joy that we are anticipating. But as we are looking ahead with faith and ahead with anticipation, we are to be living right now as those whose hearts are ruled by Christ. He is our king. We are of his kingdom. And he has told us that he is returning soon. So the best way for us to see what I'm talking about here is to gain an overall perspective of God's plan for mankind as it's laid out for us in the Bible. 
So here's, here's the first application, the first of three applications. And this is, this is the one we're going to spend the bulk of our time on. We need to understand God's plan for restoring, restoring joy through Christ. We need to understand God's plan for restoring joy through Christ. So God's plan, well, it's the story of the Bible, really. And so I'm going to give you just a very simplistic breakdown of the Bible's timeline. And I'm sure there's some really good ones out there. This is just mine that I threw together for the purpose of this talk. Four stages of the Bible's of the history that the Bible lays out for us. Creation, curse, Christ, consummation. Creation, curse, Christ, consummation. So the narrative of Scripture, it opens with creation. It was in the Garden of Eden where God placed the first man and the woman. God created a garden in Eden. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. He created a garden there. And in this place on earth, he and mankind were going to freely enjoy one another. Um, we see the reference to this. And we'll, re- we'll jump back to this verse when we see it you know, fully what it's saying. But we see, the, we see the reference to this enjoyment of God with man in verse 8 of chapter 3. They, referring to the man and the woman, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right now, there's more to this verse that we'll get to in a little bit. But here you can just see the implication. This is what God did, maybe even on a daily basis. And it suggests here a closeness and an intimacy and a fellowship between God and man. And this this really is the essence of paradise. When we think of paradise, we think of a tropical paradise. And the, being a garden, it was probably a tropical place. Let's just assume that. We don't know for certain. There was trees. There was all kinds of good stuff. But the essence of paradise, biblically speaking, is man and God in fellowship together, walking together in, in great joy. Now, while we can hardly imagine all of this, right, there, there remain two aspects of life in the garden that we still have some familiarity with today. Okay, two aspects, work, and relationship. So first, God gave mankind work to do in the garden. We see this in chapter 2, verse 5. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. But uh, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. Jump down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it. And keep it. So from the very beginning, work was a part of God's original intention for mankind. This is before the fall. So I'm sorry to tell you that work is not a consequence of the fall. There was a consequence of the fall upon work, but work was ordained by God from the very beginning. God made us for work. He created man. He assigned to both the man and the woman the responsibility of cultivating the garden so that it would continue to be a place where he could be amongst all of mankind. Work was a good thing because its purpose was to maintain and to even expand this good thing and make it an even more wonderful thing. And this meant that work, the work that we were created to do, it was enjoyable. 
It was a good thing. And now what remains unchanged is that we were created for work. Work is good. Work is necessary. It may not be the enjoyable thing that it was in the garden, but the point is that from the very beginning, God had work in mind when he made us. Now, God also, secondly, he made us to be relational. <clears throat> he created Adam and Eve. He brought all, first he created Adam, and he, then he brought all the animals to him to be named. And it was through that process that Adam realized he had no one like him. And he, no one with whom he could have a satisfying relationship. And so God declares in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, it's not, a, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God then creates Eve from Adam and he brings her to him. He's overjoyed and he says in verse 23 of chapter 2, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God made man to be a relational being who shares his life with others. And so from the very beginning, we were made to enjoy relationship and purposeful existence in God's presence. When we are living out our humanity in this way, in the presence of God, it's then that we are experiencing our humanity in the fullest sense. Right? The Garden of Eden was the place that God created for mankind to live purposefully and in relationship with him and with one another. So that is heaven on earth. That's what it was. And for a brief period of time, man was living as they were created to live by God. But this all, of course, as we know, it came to a screeching halt just a couple pages into our Bible in chapter 3, where creation gives way to the next part of the Bible's timeline. Curse. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but instead they grasp to become God. And they do this by disobeying him. And in so doing, they bring sin and they bring death. Into the world. Instead of obeying what God said, Eve listened to the crafty lies of the devil in verse 6 of chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And the consequences were immediate. The account says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. See, they saw each other differently now. But far worse, they saw God differently. So the joy and the delight that they had in their daily fellowship with God, it was now replaced with fear. Back to verse 8 that we read earlier. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, like apparently he always was doing or regularly did. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. See, the garden, it was no longer the place for man and God to be together. Now it was a place where man hid from God. The change to the world is made clear as God pronounces then his judgment. When it comes to work, it would now be difficult and it would be wearisome. When it comes to their relationships, there would, they would be difficult. They would be fraught with challenges, death. It's now inevitable. God's place and man's place no longer together in, in this garden. God expels them from the garden. And man and God have been separated ever since. 
again, this is just chapter 3 of Genesis. But from that point forward in the remainder of the Bible, it's now the story of God making a way for man to once again be in his presence. To get us back to the garden. One place where this restoration plan of the Bible, where it becomes very evident is in God's design of the temple system where, where God is clearly, in how he designed the tabernacle and the temple, he's clearly pointing men's hearts back to the garden. See, within the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple we find in the Bible, there are remainders, or excuse me, reminders of what man had in the garden. In both the tabernacle in the wilderness, then later in the temple in Jerusalem, God is accessible to man. Oh, but only with extreme limitations now. See, sin had separated man from God, and man could only go so far towards the presence of God, represented by the the Holy of Holies. And where was that Holy of Holies now? Well, it was hidden. And it was behind this vast, this massive veil in the temple. And the only way back into his presence for man, it was through sacrifice. But even even this was greatly limited to just one day of the year, the day of atonement. Other than that one day and only only after elaborate rituals to atone for the sins of the people and for himself could just the high priest enter then into the most holy place. Now, this separation between man and God as a result of the curse, it remained in place for several millennia with the continual sacrifices reminding mankind of the continual need of atonement for sin. But all of this changed when when God once again came to man in the person and the work of his son, Jesus. The beginning of the end of mankind's separation from God because of the curse of sin was the incarnation of Jesus. And so the, the third point on this very simple explanation of the Bible's timeline is Christ. Creation, curse, Christ. And quoting again from Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Jesus. He's appeared in human flesh. And in doing so, he he is God announcing to the world that the time of man's separation from him was coming to an end. Jesus himself was going to make the way to the Father once and for all. How? Through the sacrifice of himself. No more bulls. No more goats. No more sheep. On the cross, the blood of God's perfect lamb was shed on our behalf. And when we think again of the temple... And that veil that separated the presence of God from the presence of humanity. It's Matthew who's, who's careful, right? He wrote to a Jewish audience. 
And he was careful to note in his gospel one significant event that happened at the moment that Jesus yielded up his spirit in death. You see it in Matthew 27, verse 51. Turn there quick if you want to read it with your own eyes. Here's what it says. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It wasn't from bottom to top. This was God tearing this veil. This was the beginning of God's restoring humanity's place with Him. See, for the person who is united to Christ in faith, their relationship with God has been restored. Right now, Christian, you can enjoy a restored spiritual relationship with God. And as amazing as that is, we have not yet been fully restored, have we? No, we're still waiting. We're waiting to once again be in God's presence physically. And this physical restoration is the final hope of believers. And it has been since Christ died, rose again, and ascended back to the Father's side. So it's easy to get caught up wondering when the return of Christ will happen. Even the disciples got caught up asking questions about what they, what they need, beyond what they actually needed to know. Remember the scene described in the first chapter of Acts. Turn there. Go to Acts chapter 1. This is when the disciples were gathered around Jesus before he ascended. <clears throat> they had one final question for him. We see it in verse uh, 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They wanted to know if Jesus was now going to usher in this messianic age that the prophets had all spoke about in the Old Testament. I'd want to know that too. People want to know that today. And here's Jesus' answer. Verse 7, he said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Is it time? Not yet. Not yet. God who made man for work has more work for you to do. And he will give to us his own spirit to empower us to carry out this work. Verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So he's calling his disciples not to be focused on when this final restoration will come about. What's he calling them to do instead? Trust and obey. And this is what the church has been focused on for the last 2,000 plus years. We are to be focused on this work of making disciples of the nations through the preaching of the gospel. Each generation of the church, right down to our own, is to be a faithful witness of Christ to the world until the time that God, in His authority, has determined for what is the fourth and final step in the Bible's timeline. Consummation. 
consummation. God has already revealed it to us through the Apostle John in his revelation. It is the restoration of all things. It is the including, and this includes the reuniting of God and man together in one place. So turn there. Turn now to the last book in your Bible. And read, let's go almost to the very end itself, chapter 21. We've been reading through this book. We're not yet to chapter 21. But we're going to jump ahead. We're going to look at the end. We're still back in all these judgments where we're going, man, what is this going to be? What is this going to be like? What's it going to look like? And everybody here would probably have a different idea. But we're going to skip over that and get to the end of what he says is going to happen. That's undisputable. This is where our focus needs to be. So John here in chapter 21, he records the moment when heaven which he pictures here as a city, this new Jerusalem, when it descends and heaven is again united with earth. Look at uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. See, the place where God resides is now once again amongst man on earth. Only this time, it's full. And it is forever. And as you look at what John saw and he wrote for us under inspiration of the Spirit, when we see what is in this city of God that's coming, you see some of the same things that were present back in the garden. They're here in this city. Listen now, we won't jump back to Genesis. Let's just stay here because we're going to see these things in just a moment. But here's, let me just read to you what was in the garden from Genesis 2. Keep note of these things. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of out of Eden to water the garden. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Then the Lord God said, Behold the man uh, that he might... uh, the man might that he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So we've got in the garden, let me just name off a couple of these things. We've got a tree of life, rivers that give life. There's no death. Gold is everywhere. And God is present. Now listen to what John says is there in the New Jerusalem. Look at 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So we've got the rivers of life. 
We've got the tree of life in verse 2. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Look at the description of the city. The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. Not only was the city gold, even what you walk on is gold. Verse 21, the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And in this city, there is no death. Verse 4, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. But here's the most significant similarity between the garden and the new Jerusalem. God is amongst men. Look at verse 4. Who's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes there? He will. He will. Sin is removed. Death is defeated. Man no longer needs to fear the presence of God. And that is what Christian eschatology is pointing us to. This garden, this paradise of man and God together, it's restored. And that, friends, is the full and the complete picture of of the restoration of our joy. And when does this happen? Well, it happens when Christ returns. There are many other things that are going to happen that are going to happen that lead up to his return. Do we know exactly what they are? Do we know exactly when they will happen? No, we don't. It's fine to talk about what those things might be and when they might happen. But we are not to let those speculations distract us from being the faithful witnesses that he has commissioned us to be until that day when he returns. Are are you tired of being in a world full of pain, heartache, regret that comes with being a human in a fallen world? Does sadness mark your life? Does regret plague you? See, the day is coming when people won't hurt you, your body won't fail you, Your heart won't lead you astray and only joy will define your existence. And that day begins the moment Christ returns and when heaven returns to earth. And you may wonder why he hasn't returned yet. And like the saints down through the ages, you may be waiting your entire life. But to the one for whom a thousand years is like a day. Look at what he says in verse seven to us of chapter twenty two. I am coming quickly. See, this is God's plan. He is in the process of restoring joy through Christ. Can you see why you you have to first understand that this is God's plan? Because if you don't know what God is doing and to what end he is bringing all of human history, how can you have hope? That's the purpose of eschatology. God has told us in advance what he is doing so that we can stay focused on what we are to be about as the people of his kingdom in whose hearts Christ is ruling and reigning. His kingdom has come. And yet we are still waiting for the return of the king and the coming of his kingdom in full. Now, most of you are familiar with the significance of Matthew chapter 24 in the Bible. So go ahead and turn there. 
It's commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when he answered a question that had been on the mind of his disciples. The same question has been on the minds of his disciples ever since. We see it in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things happen and, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, as you may also know, there's a great deal of controversy regarding the signs that he mentions here, along with much debate over the, over the timing of these events. And many previous generations have wondered if the signs that Christ mentions in this chapter, if they were coming true in their time. Do you realize that? That's not just now. This has been going on ever since Christ returned. Almost every generation has said, it's got to be now. Look at all these things, how they just line up. It's got to be now. But here's what we're going to be focused on this morning. It's what the debate is not over. Here's the first thing of which there is no debate. The first thing. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Evil will be punished. It will be destroyed once and for all time. Look at verses 29 of chapter 24, 29 through 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fade from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Jesus wins. The other thing that there's no debate over is what we are to be about until this day. And we see this in chapter 25 where Jesus turns his attention towards the final judgment. And again, see, God wants you to know what is coming so that you won't falter, so that you won't lose hope. And Jesus here, he's giving us a glimpse at the settled future in which Jesus reigns victorious. He issues his final judgments upon all of humanity and he places those under condemnation. He puts them on his left and those who are under his grace, he puts them on his right. And listen to what he says to those who are on his right, those who are under his grace. It's in chapter 25. Look at verses 34. Follow with me. 25 verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, To the extent that you did it to one of these, my brothers, 
these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. He's telling us here, not how we're saved, by doing all these things. That's not what he's saying. He's describing the purpose for which he saved us. He's listing off the good works that they did as they waited for him to return. The new life to which each of us has been raised up now, when he saved us, it is now to be lived out. We are to live as people of his kingdom, and he's describing what that looks like. So because you understand God's plan for restoring joy through Christ, here's what you can now focus on, Christian. You can focus on what he's talking about right here. You can, here's the second big application. You can pursue great joy by serving others like Christ. Pursue great joy by serving others like Christ. Christ says we need to feed the hungry. Well, Christ fed the hungry. Why? To satisfy their appetite? No. Because he was the bread of life. And we're to do the same. We're to meet the needs of the thirsty. How? By giving them the living water that Christ gave to us. We're, we were strangers in the land of sin and death. And Jesus was kind to us. He welcomed us into the kingdom of life. So we're to do the same. We were naked in our sin and shame. And Christ clothed us with his righteousness. So we are to clothe others. See, in Christ, we care for the sick because Jesus healed us from the disease of our sin. Did Christ free you from your bondage to sin? Yeah. So we love those who are prisoners still, no matter what they've done to us. This is what we are to be about because this is what Jesus did in saving us. He fed us the bread of life. He gave us living water. He welcomed us into his kingdom. He clothed us with his righteousness. He healed us from sin and he freed us from bondage. And so we are to serve others like Christ served us. And knowing that Christ will come back in victory, that should drive us to live differently and live distinctly from the world around us. See, when you live out your eschatology, you are being who you are in Christ and you are living in light of the victory that he has already won for you. Listen to how he phrases this victory and the practical results of it in your life. We see this in Colossians 2. Jump over there. Colossians 2, 13. When you were dead... Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way. He's nailed it to the cross. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities and he's made a public display of them. He's triumphed over them. And so have you through him. Because you're in Christ, you're now alive together with Him. And Paul goes on, keep reading into chapter 3. You've been raised up with Christ. You're seated at God's right hand. 
put sin to death. Why? Because that's not how, who you are anymore. Put on your new self. God chose you to be like Him. Compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, forgiving. This is how He was towards you and this is how you can be towards others. Is it easy? No. But He's freed you from it. He's given you the resources to build your faith in you so that you can live it out through the Scriptures, through the gathering of the saints for fellowship. All of this works together so that you can be who Christ has called you to be until He returns. And while we are pursuing this great joy of serving others like Christ has served us, what are we to be doing? Anticipating the unending joy of the return of Christ. It's the third application here. Anticipate unending joy at the return of Christ. We need to constantly remember this is not all there is. This is not the end of the story. Jesus wins. He's returning to earth. And, and in that day, no one will be hungry. No one will be thirsty. No one will be naked or in bondage. The reality of who we are in Christ, that's going to be complete. We're not working hard to try to get there. It's done. When Jesus returns, His kingdom now comes in full and it will be fully present. And so, yes, we must live today who we are. And it's knowing that Jesus is returning that helps you to be who you are today. Anticipating unending joy at Christ's return, that's what helps you pursue great joy in serving others like Christ today. So are you doing this? Are you anticipating an unending joy at the return of Christ? I hope you are. This day is coming when God is going to bring heaven to earth. And not only will death and sin and Satan be defeated, but we will again be with our God and He with us. When Christ returns, we'll be what God created man to be in the fullest Sense And in that day, we will know unending joy. That is what is coming. And so until that day, let us be faithfully pursuing the great joy that is found in serving others like Christ served us. Let's pray. This is your story. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. You see it all laid out and you have told us this so that we would not lose heart. The end is coming. Is it coming in our lifetime? We have no idea. We know many other faithful saints down through the ages have wondered that same thing. That is not for us to be setting our wonderings upon. We should be wondering how to get the gospel out, wondering how to make more disciples for Christ, wondering how to make your name more glorious in all the earth. That's what we are to be really wondering about, to help us to be about that for your name's sake and for your glory and for our joy. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.